Welcome to Truth to Power. This is Hart Hagen, and I'm joined by Jake Bush. Jake, how are you doing today? Doing okay. Trying to stay indoors. We got all these uh, white militias out here in Louisville today, and uh, I'd rather not mess with that. And so you're I'm just the kind of guy they want to mess with. Yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> I, I suppose I would be a, a, a target, such as they probably don't have you know, coherent targets. I don't think they're coherent on anything, but yeah, right. I'm trying to avoid that. I was at a peace protest one time and, and somebody, we were protesting the Iran, possible Iran war. And uh, somebody came away and called and, and yelled out sissies, except they didn't use a, the word sissy. They use a stronger word that starts with a P. And it's yeah. like, if you're not for all this militarism, if you're not for shooting people, then you're effeminate, you know? Right. It's like, oh, give me a break. You're just packing all sorts of pathologies into one short sentence yeah. so we know where you stand. Got it. And it's like your manhood is, is uh, measured by your ability to withstand being blown up by a bomb, you know? Or that's, somebody that's else doing it, because you know that guy's not going to do it. Right. Yeah, right. that guy's not going to do it, but he and, wants and other bravery, people. Bravery is when you're, uh, you're piloting a drone from 5,000 miles away. In your pajamas. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Bravery is, is when, I heard a Marine commander one time quoted as saying, if you find yourself in a fair fight, you haven't prepared enough. Yeah. And for, for the longest time, that was inspiring. And it, it, but then you look at the reality. If you find yourself in a, in a fair fight, you, you're not uh, enjoying full spectrum dominance, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> full spectrum dominant. We're going to dominate the air, the land, the sea, uh, the uh, space and cyberspace. So I, I, okay. We're been playing a lot of strategy on. games, so if we go down this path, I'm gonna have to start taking notes for for my strategy uh -huh. games. So, <laughs> right, so we're we're gonna get started on Black Panthers in just a minute. But I, you know, I've I've had a problem with this thing of Space Force. So people, you know, uh, Space Force, they don't even know what it is. But I, I I was listening to something. I forget exactly what it was, but it made all kinds of sense. That said, you know, there's, there's at, the, at a certain level in space, there's all this space junk. And, it, and it's like the, the uh, and, and the stuff is going like 17,000 miles an hour. And it doesn't have, it could be a bolt. And, it, and if it hits your vessel, you're done. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and there was a, you know, what, there was a serious emergency on a space shuttle flight. I think it was Sally, Sally Ride, famous female astronaut. There was a, a, a famous, there was a, a near catastrophe on a space shuttle flight and they determined that the window had been hit by a fleck of paint. Uh. A fleck of paint nearly sunk a manned spacecraft. And so if you have a space force and you have all this space-based weaponry, then you're going to fill that space up with uh, a lot of junk real fast and it already has too much junk. It already has dangerous amounts of junk in it. All that's just going to multiply if we do this space force thing. But You're telling me, but it sounds sexy. You, you know? don't trust Jared Kushner to plan for this. What oh, are you doing? Oh, Have some oh, faith. Since Jared's in charge, <laughs> my man, Jared. My man. <laughs> yeah, he, he can do that and, uh, and make peace in Israel all at the same time. Absolutely. I have all the faith in the world in our 
long, gross-looking boy. He just looks like he's stretched out. That's right. that's all the brain power. That's all that is. So what have we got with Black Panthers, Jake? Uh, so today, we're going to be talking about the 10 beliefs of the Black Panther Party. Uh, this would have been uh, from the original document drafted by, I believe, Newton and Seal. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah, that okay. sounds right. They're the founders of the Black Panther Party. I believe they were the primary drafters of this document. Uh, so we already covered on an earlier show uh, the uh, demands of the Black Panther Party, the 10 demands. Um, but today we're going to be talking about the beliefs of the Black Panther Party. Uh, I really think this is a spectacular document uh, and we'll get into why. Um, but just the cohesiveness of it, the way that they, they have this very clear-headed vision of exactly how to hone in on the weak links of capital, I think, because mm -hmm. um, that's really the whole project, right, is try to find the weak spots, right? Where, where does this chain look weak so we can find a way to to find our way into it, to stop the whole thing. And I think that their demands and their beliefs really do that. And they articulate, I believe, you know, the possibility for a, an anti-racist uh, socialism uh, that, you know, is not purely nationalistic in character, is not identitarian in nature necessarily. They're making specific demands on the behalf of black people. Um, but it is not like a separatist document. It is not a nationalist document. Um, I think they understood the shortcomings of that sort of philosophy. And I think that's really on display here. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if you, I think it would be a good idea if you want to, to bring us through their demands, perhaps, um, just, just to catch people up. And see right, let's do that. Let's go alternate. I'll take the odd numbers and you take the even numbers. So their demands are as follows. They have 10 demands and 10 beliefs. Their demands are as follows. Number one, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. Yeah, and that will come back. Uh, number two is we want full employment for our people. Number three, we want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black and oppressed communities. Number four is we want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. Number five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. Pretty spicy on that one. Uh, <laughs> number six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. Number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Mm -hmm. Number eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. Number nine, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. And number 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. Awesome. See, they want peace. Uh, that's not what I was told. I don't know about you, but that is not yeah, what I learned about right. the Black Panther Party. Um, well, you're supposed to believe that all these subversive ele elements are dangerous. Right. They're upsetting the public order, which, as we know, the public order is very good and just. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I if think we can only get back to normal after COVID. <laughs> we can only get back to normal. 
<laughs> I love that. I really love that talking yeah. point. We got to go back to normal. It's like, well, what was normal, man? I don't think that was very good either. I'm just saying. And, Can I? and that, um, that lieutenant governor in Texas that said, old people ought to be willing to die to save the capitalist system. Yeah. That just, just why not, man? Why, I mean, why even? Dying anyway. Why not? Well, you know, anyway. But why even sugarcoat it? You know, just right, tell us right. what you really think. We'll all right. appreciate it. Right. Save us some time. Because um, the system is worth dying to save. 100%. I mean, whether you want to or not, he's going to decide for all of us whether the system is worth dying to save. Well, God, somebody's got to buy another yacht. I don't know what to tell you. Um, no, I was just going to say, I really like how they, they did this, where they, the demands and the beliefs work together so well, where I think they sort of assumed the argument and they assumed what people were going to say about these demands. So they, and these beliefs, they just bake in the explanations right then and there. Um, so I don't know about you, but I, I kind of want to get into this. You ready to okay. go? All right, good. Cool. So number one, uh, 10 points of the Black Panther Party, what we believe. Number one, we believe that black people will not be free until we are able to determine our own destiny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this, is, this gets back to the key point of the entire document, I think. You know, um, what they're trying to do here is outline a case uh, and it shows that they they really followed the teachings of people like Mao and Lenin uh, in that they really wanted self-determination more than anything. That's what all this is rooted in. Like if you go beyond even sort of like the political theory and just distill down, what do you want? You know what I mean? Uh, I think that your answer would be self-determination mm -hmm. and not having, you know, this ruling class make the decisions for your community. Um, and we see this all the time, you know, when people talk about, and we're going to get to this, I don't mean to, to jump the gun, but, you know, when people talk all the time about, like, well, you know, you always have to have some kind of police or always some kind of decision-making authority figure or something like that. And, and most people don't really argue with the broad concepts necessarily. They just are saying, okay, fine, but we want those to actually be accountable to us and actually right. be there for the good of the community. Uh, which they are currently not. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so I think that, that that's just such a powerful way to lead off the document is, is by asserting this kind of base principle of self-determination for a community that's never happened. Yeah, this reminds me of the saying, and I don't know if it was Gramsci or, an, or an, one, another Italian like thinker who, or maybe a, um, somebody of African origin, but they said, freedom is participation in power. Mm -hmm. you know, if you can't, if you're not a participant in power, then you're not free because power is being exercised. People are exercising power. And if you're not among those that are exercising power, then you're not free because they can put you in chains. They can take away everything that you have if they have power and you don't. So he's saying we will not be free until we are able to determine our own destiny. I mean, show me, I like saying that, you know, show me real democracy. Uh, democracy is where you actually get a vote on what actually affects you. You know, it's not about casting a ballot about, uh, between two candidates that hardly differ from one another. It's not about an, a political agenda that no, does not give the people any power, including over their economic destiny, their workplace, et cetera. So it's a freedom is the power to determine your own destiny. Yeah. And it looks like that quote, actually, according to Google, that quote originates with Cicero. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. So it's quite an old one. 
Yeah, right. I, I think I think your boy Ralph Nader actually used that one uh, <laughs> too, but <laughs> I'm sure it's been repeated ad nauseum because uh, it's a good distillation of what we're talking about here, you know. Uh, and it, and I think the core of what you and I talk about a lot, not just on the air, um, is just the principle of democracy in, in its very base form, like the, the very general form of democracy and people having uh, the ability to make decisions uh, in their lives you know, and actually work together for a common good uh, instead of being forced into something that they have no consent of, or even in a lot of cases, knowledge of. And, you know, one way of manipulating people, one way of exercise, one way that the powers that be exercise that force is through ideology. Ideology related to the free market, ideology related to American exceptionalism. It's like if you're not in the power structure, you have, it's like, uh, you have to explain why you're not for this so-called free market. Everybody's indoctrinated in the free market. Everybody's indoctrinated in American exceptionalism. It's like where, where, it's where America uh, goes around the world. You know, the America, American empire, the, the military is the knight in shining armor going around the world, saving it from itself. So it's, the, it's that ideology that, that takes so many issues off the table. So and let's go to the next uh let's go to the next one number two sure. you want to read number two yeah i'd be happy to so uh number two is we believe that the federal government is responsible and obligated to give every man employment or a guaranteed income we believe if the white american businessmen will not give full employment the means of production should be taken from the businessmen and placed in the community so that the people of the community can organize and employ all of its people and give a high standard of living. Uh, now, if, of course, that was just, we want full employment for our people on the demands. And right here, they're explaining a little bit more detail about this. Um, and so, you know, this is, a, this is a conversation people are having right now, right? Exactly. So there's, so there's the guaranteed income, and then there's the working people owning the means of production. And some people are talking about basic income, but not working people owning the means of production. Mm -hmm. Some people like Richard Wolf doesn't like basic income because he thinks that's a distraction from working people owning the means of production. Yeah, that's uh, honestly kind of where I land. Um, I, I get hesitant when I see sort of right-wing libertarians, even the sort of softer ones. A lot of the times when we say right-wing libertarians, we think of the three percenter. Like, like Joe Biden? <laughs> well, close enough, honestly. <laughs> um, he's a lot closer to that than he is to me. Um, but, you know, a lot of the times when you see sort of right-wing libertarians talk about basic income, what they're trying to do is say, we're not going to change anything about this free market system. We're not going to change anything about where power is allocated. We're just going to let people participate in a little bit more so that it keeps fluid cash going through the system, um, which maybe would be better than what we have now, but ultimately the contradictions of our system would still be there. Uh, and there would still be the profit incentive. There would still be, you know, the hierarchical system we have. Uh, and ultimately, I don't think the base of society changes at all. Um, except now you just have a little bit more liquid cash floating around, um, which again, probably not gonna make the major changes. So, I, you know, I do think it's interesting that they included the, the guaranteed income. Um, it makes me think that's sort of a political feint, 
do you think? Like this is sort of like, well, if you're not going to do this, you're going to have to give us a guaranteed income and we don't think you're going to do that. That's what it reads like to me. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Good strategy on their part, don't you think? Uh, probably, yeah. I mean, I, don't, I, I think that it, it's so funny reading this because these are all very radical demands. They're all, all very um, far outside the Overton window. Uh, but frankly, when you read them just plainly, it, it doesn't really read as all that absurd to me. Oh, but yeah. That might just be my right. personal bias coming in. Um, but it all seems like, yeah, no, I get it. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, at least I certainly think so. I don't know about you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so guaranteed income, I think, is a real good idea. Of course, the uh, the day, the you know, it alone, as far as it goes, I mean, how effective it would be depends entirely on the amount. And it also, it's, it's not something that should happen alone. I mean, if you do that without breaking up the monopolies, if you do that without having a serious wealth tax, then then it's not going to do it, it then it's going to do some good but it, it you know, it's not going to be a panacea the stratification remains yeah. you know if everyone is two thousand dollars richer then you've just bumped everything up just a little bit and everything is still relatively the same um so yeah no i i, I just i'm glad that they married it to a broader program because that's what you have to do with something like guaranteed income and then if we, uh, the thing about working people owning the means of production is that that's practice in democracy. It's like, we don't know, we don't know what, we've never seen democracy. We don't know what democracy looks like. We don't know what democracy feels like. On an average day, most people don't participate in democracy. Uh, but, uh, you know, workers owning the means of production would be that individual participation in democracy. Why don't we go to the next one? I will say this first before okay, we sure. do, um, you know, that that's really the selling point of like a democratic socialism, right? Like I know that as a member of DSA, um, that's sort of our pitch to people mm -hmm. is like, we are fundamentally democratic. We believe in democracy. Why not democracy in the workplace? Because that's what it, that's what it is. Clear and simple. Sorry. I just had to say that because I just, I, I always want to put that out there. Like it really is that simple to explain. But anyway, keep going. I don't mean to. Well, the propaganda <laughs> machine that we've lived with for a hundred years uh, has has done a great job of. Uh, okay, okay. Here, let me lead up to this. Here's some. Here's a logical. I don't know if it's a syllogism, but it's a logical thing. Okay, God is love. Love is blind. Ray Charles is blind. Therefore, Ray Charles is God. Well, you could convince me. <laughs> I've heard a Ray it Charles makes song. perfect sense. So, so here's how that here's how that translates. Um, Stalin was the leader of a country that called itself socialist. Stalin was a dictator. Therefore, socialism is uh, is is authoritarian. Therefore, when Bernie Sanders talks about socialism, it's it's authoritarian. Therefore, Bernie Sanders equals Stalin. No, uh, yeah, but that's much less convincing than the, the assertion that Stevie is God. That I would believe that a lot, a lot quicker than this. Right. <laughs> right. But anyway, you can take the next one. Okay. Um, number three of the beliefs of the Black Panthers. We believe that this racist government has robbed us, and now we are demanding the overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. 
40 acres and two mules was promised 100 years ago as redistribution for slave labor and mass murder of black people. We will accept the payment in currency, which will be distributed to our many communities. The Germans are now aiding the Jews in Israel for genocide of the Jewish people. The Germans murdered six million Jews. The American racist has taken part in the slaughter of over 50 million black people. Therefore, we feel that this is a modest demand that we, that we make. Yeah, I, so I get into these sort of I try not to debate too many people, not because I think debate is useless or anything, because sometimes it has its uses, but most of the time when people want to debate you, they really just want to shout at you <laughs> um, and, and win rather than learn anything. Um, They're trying but, you know, to embody hostility and belligerence and, and solve complicated issues with a soundbite. See, that's, all right. That's you, debate. That's, that's debate. It's theater most of the time. Right. Um, but, it's you WWE. know. WWE. Yeah, which, you know, I like pro wrestling, but it's pro wrestling. You're I'm right. right. You. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not Roman Reigns, man. Uh, I wish I was sometimes. But, you know, I've, I've heard people say like, well, yeah, anybody who was a slave, I'd be happy to pay reparations to them right. as this sort of like brushing off of the, the actual meaning of the history of slavery and how it never, you know, it was never healed. That's a wound that was never closed. Um, and that's really the call for reparations now is people saying like, we've started way behind, why not move us up to make it even? Um, and I, I think that again, marrying this to a broader program, uh, talking about things like putting the, the means of production in people's hands makes this such a stronger case, you know? Uh, Cause I think that there are some people out there who have really no issue with capitalism. Uh, but they do want reparations because their assumption is that if we have reparations, we'll have a genuinely free and equal market because black people can now participate at the level that white people have been able to. Um, and I think that kind of belies a, a misunderstanding of capitalism and its contradictions. Um, but, you know, this demand made in conjunction with all these other ones, I think if you have any understanding of history and how it works, it doesn't really feel that outlandish to me. Mm -hmm. I've never really thought it was. I was always curious, like, why the heck wasn't there reparations for slavery? It doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. Um, of course, now I know a bit about history and the economy, and now it makes sense. Well, reparations is a great topic. There's a book called From Here to Equality that I hope to study. I've read it. I hope to study it on these episodes sometime. But, uh, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of wealth that is possessed and controlled by white people, which is a direct result of slavery. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like what well, Malcolm X was talking to a group of people and he said, uh, he said, you know, in essence, he was, he was saying, you know, what if I got to keep you, know, what if I, uh, you know, taxed you at 100% and got to keep your wages for a year? You know, how much richer would I be? as a mm -hmm. result of that. Now, uh, that's exactly what happened uh, when black people were enslaved and the value of their labor was kept and accumulated for 400 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and how much extra wealth did that result? Uh, how much extra wealth resulted from that? Yeah, I mean, it, again, like it, it's, it's about the easiest thing to understand if you, if you take it seriously and if you actually 
I'm interested in learning, which is why I don't really debate people on this because most of the time they're not interested. Oh yeah, they're not in interested. <laughs> right. No. Uh, so what's the point? Uh, but yeah, it seems like the most obvious thing, and it's true. Reparations have been paid to all to all kinds of different groups across the world, you know, but not to American black people. Right. Um, you want me to move on to the next one? Sure. Cool. Number four, we believe that if the white landlords will not give decent housing to our black community, then the housing and the land should be made into cooperatives so that our community with government aid can build and make a decent housing for its people. Um, I think this is stronger by saying with government aid because the assumption and with cooperatives, because one of the issues I have with number three is that there's no discussion of the mechanism of how this takes place. Is this just cutting a check to anybody who is a descendant of slaves or what, you know, like, mm -hmm. and I'm not asking them to get into policy details. This is not a policy document. I understand that, but it, it is a stronger place to start from. If you already bake into it, no, we're going to do cooperatives. We're going to have aid to put money into the community and then the community can sort it out amongst themselves. Um, and frankly, this is precisely the kind of thing I'd like to see. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even black. <laughs> right. So, you know, the, the logistics of equalizing things without being unfair, without confiscating. I mean, you know, there's a fine line. That, well, you have to do this in a way that, that, is, that doesn't look like confiscation and is not confiscation. Like I'm a strong supporter of a wealth tax, which Bernie Sanders wealth tax goes up to 8% for the people at the top levels, which is very modest. I mean, they can make more, more than 8% off of their wealth in a given year. So 8% wealth tax is very modest. And uh, I, I think it's entirely appropriate. So you have that, that is a way of redistributing wealth without it uh, seeming like you're uh, confiscating from any individual in a way that's unfair. But do you, but you do get into, you know, people need to own the means of production, not just in the workplace, but the, their, where they live is a means of production. So I don't know how exactly that would work, but I think that people ought to be, people ought to have a, you know, the ownership or a leasehold on property for life. And maybe they can exchange it when they want to move or something like that, but it needs to way, be a way of not having that fall into the hands of speculators well, and, we're, and, and debt, you know, coupon clippers and debt. What am I trying to say? People that, you know, creditors. Credit speculative landlords who just yeah, buy things right, up to flip right, them. Exactly. Well, there's actually, it's funny, like, you don't even have to have radical things to make that happen, honestly, because the city is already doing this. And by the city, I mean, a lot of cities are doing this, where I know here in Louisville, the local government has an initiative in place where if you're an absentee landlord, and you just own property, you don't even live anywhere near it, you don't do anything with it. It's just sitting there accumulating, you know, interest or whatever for you, um, then the city will, will force you to sell. Um, that is a thing that is done here in Louisville. It's done all over because, the, of course, people are saying this is a, a bit of property that is not being put to any use at all. It's not making the community any better. Uh, so we're going to buy it from you real, real cheap uh, and then try to make something of it. You know, uh, there are community land trusts that people have, which is a fantastic tool. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, obviously we don't have the time to get into all that today. But my point is this can be done now. You know, this, this is not something that you have to have some sort of like, you know, people's revolution or whatever to, to do. This can be done right now. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and in some places it is being done. It's just not being done at the level that it needs to be done. If you're, uh, just real quick, if you're free this coming Friday, there's a meeting that I may or may not be able to go to. I think it's available online, but people are like the Food and Neighborhoods Community Coalition is trying, they're like eight, 2,000 or so parcels that are vacant that could potentially be farmed and they're trying to get the city to make it easier for people to get access to that land. And one thing that the idea they've been throwing around is community land trust. And they're actually meeting this Friday with Brandon Cohn, who's the outgoing uh, Metro Council member from District 8. Uh, and I think his successor, Cassie Armstrong, is going to uh, also be very uh, amenable to whatever they come up with. But it's a, it, you know, that is the context in which I have seen and heard serious discussion of a community land trust. And, you know, it, it, it would be great to kind of empower people uh, to save people the head. If you want to farm, it saves you a lot of bureaucratic work. Um, anyway. Yeah, we should push that information out because I'm very yeah. interested. I think more people should be. But right. Anyway, if you want to. Number five. Move us on to five. Okay. I, I love the next one. We believe in an educational system that will give our people knowledge of self. If a man does not have knowledge of himself and his position in society and the world, then he has little chance to relate to anything else. That's uh pretty deep right there, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I know that this is one that is very specifically for uh, the black community. You know, I was talking that this, this is a document that ultimately is amenable, I think, to a, you know, multiracial working class coalition. You know, I, I, I don't see any reason why this wouldn't be amenable to that sort of a society. Uh, but this one in here is, is very powerful and I think very specific to the struggles of black Americans who have just sort of been left adrift in this country without any sort of grasp on where they come from or, or who they really are outside of the knowledge that we are the descendants of slaves, which is in itself kind of traumatic, you know? Right. Um, so go ahead. Well, I'm gonna read into this what I think it, to me, it just, okay, we're talking about education. To me, one of the most important elements of education is history, because especially as a citizen, because if you're misled about what our history really means, I mean, if you think American history is a process whereby those with wealth and privilege gradually let others in to their wealth and privilege, uh, and uh, but uh, you know, the reality is that privileges and rights are only they're they're taken, they're not given. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Frederick Douglass said, um, um, something oh, pr something about a demand. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. And um, so to me, how can you have a decent educational system if the teachers themselves have been indoctrinated? So I think you, at some point, the real disparity uh, is, is the media. It's like if you take all... Uh, media, PR, advertising, and add it up, it equals about a seventh of the economy. It's a huge thing. If you put together all of the news media, entertainment media, PR, and advertising, and because it's sponsored commercially, it's always biased toward a pro-commercial view. You're not going to have the commercial system be critiqued within uh, our system such as it is. So I think at some point, 
you have to you have to have at least the commercial media be uh, you need the competition of a publicly owned media it's like mm -hmm. npr is a good idea but it's been overtaken by commercial interests mm -hmm. uh, if, uh, if npr were actually uh, owned and controlled by the public then it would be a great thing and it would be able to call BS on the commercial messages that ignore the war machine and ignore how Wall Street really works and ignore systemic racism, ignore the prison industrial complex. You just don't hear about these things with any regularity. And people learn not that people don't learn what they hear once in a while. They learn what they hear regularly and with some repetition. There's just not enough repetition. It's not enough for people to hear about these things once in a while. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think back to uh, uh, an older man who I, I know here in Louisville, who was, uh, you know, a freedom writer, and he was a, uh, a labor leader and here in, in Louisville, and very active in his union. And he said that he was asked to teach uh, at Bellarmine University um, about the labor movement, and they wanted him to teach like seniors. And he said, No, I'd rather teach freshmen. Hmm. I need to teach them when they first come in, because they're going to hear all this garbage <laughs> uh, and I don't want to have to deprogram anybody to learn new things. Um, and of course they wouldn't let him do that. But point being, <laughs> um, point being, you know, it's very important that people understand from the get go how to, where their relation is in the world. You have to orientate, orient yourself, you know, almost like a spatial awareness, but a social awareness that you don't get if you just get that later in life. Yeah. So it looks like you're picking up on this thing. Uh, not, uh, if, if a man does not have knowledge of himself and his position in society and the world, he has little chance to relate to anything else. It seems like you're keying in on, on that fact, the self-awareness aspect of education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's crucial. You, you can't you mean education shouldn't be about creating mind-numbed robots. Right, That's yeah. The you... purpose of education. Right. This is the building block for the rest of your life, your orientation for the rest of your life. So, yeah, but um, I guess I'll, I'll move on to number six. Sure. Um, it, so number six, we believe that black people should not be forced to fight in the military service to defend a racist government that does not protect us. We will not fight and kill other people of color in the world who, like black people, are being victimized by the white racist government of America. We will protect ourselves from the force and violence of the racist police and the racist military by whatever means necessary. In um, other words, as Muhammad Ali said, I ain't got no quarrel with no Viet Cong. Exactly, exactly. I, I just love that. Uh, we talked it. about him before, but he was a fighter. He actually gave up his title for like three years, gave up his title, gave up In the, the right prime of fight. his career. Ain't got no quarrel with no Viet Cong. Yeah. I don't see how he had the courage to do that, but he did. He could have been given this cushy job. He wouldn't have had to face combat. He would have been kept out of harm's way, but he, he gave up his title. I ain't got no quarrel with no Viet Cong. Yeah, and and this is this is what people mean by by international solidarity. You know, this is this is a very key component of the Panthers too. Uh, you saw Huey Newton travel to Palestine, for example. You know, uh, to show solidarity and demonstrate the understanding that you know struggles are shared. You know, if we have a shared enemy, then we have to understand and contextualize our struggle together. Um, uh, and that, I mean, it's the only way to even understand the world, much less do anything about it. Um, and so, I, I, again, this just feels like something that I would have a very hard time disputing. 
you know, if you have any understanding, especially when this was written in the 1960s, you know, uh, I can, I don't see how it's uh, uh, controversial, you know, that a black person would look around the United States in the 1960s and say, what exactly am I fighting for here? <laughs> what am it's I protecting? As if, it's almost as if the average American has been given a lobotomy when it comes to political thought. <laughs> it's like Richard Wolff says, uh, you know, imagine that you know, there was this family in your neighborhood <clears throat> and you decide, uh, well, or one child comes out of that family thinking it's the best thing ever and the other child comes out of that family thinking it's the worst thing ever. And you only talk to one or the other, but not both. That's what we've been doing with capitalism. It's rah, 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 rah. Capitalism is all good all the time. And I heard somebody recently say that when, when you start hearing the word capitalism a lot, then capitalism is in trouble. <laughs> 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 if it's not it's, assumed, then right. you might it's have no some issues. Natural as the air we breathe. You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so did I get us way off track, way off topic? No, not at all. Because, because you know, I think that's a, a key component of this is this understanding that, you know, this is disputing that there's only one way, you know, and these are working class black people too. And a lot of working class black people or working class non-white people generally in this country have found upward mobility through the military. Um, and so it's really bold, you know, to push back against the assumed narrative that if I go to the military, I can go to college and I can make something out of my family and raise my family up. And they're saying, no, that's not, not the path that we're going to take. You know, we're not going to assimilate by any means. Uh, and I think that's a, a really powerful statement, but again, not one that I can really see as terribly controversial. Um, you know, well, yeah, I mean, it is. Once you think about it, this stuff is not too controversial or shouldn't be. No, no, I certainly don't think so. But it's subversive. So the, the, the establishment wants you to think that all this is subversive. Well, yeah, it's subverting your sorry ass if you're in the <laughs> you've got more money and power than you can use responsibly and you're just wanting more and more and more. Yeah. Your sorry ass needs to be subverted. Yeah. That's my political statement. Well, I'm not going to dispute it. <laughs> well, I don't really have anything else to say. You can take on to number seven if you'd like. I think we, you nailed okay. that one. <laughs> All right. All right. We believe we can end police. I love this because this is like community supervision of police. Mm. Uh, we believe we can end police brutality in our black community by organizing black self-defense groups that are dedicated to defending our black community from racist police oppression and brutality. Uh, the second amendment of the constitution gives us the right to bear arms. We therefore believe that all black people should arm themselves for self-defense. And if you look at the, the assassination of Fred Hampton, there are like 50 shots fired. All but one of them was the, the police firing at the Black Panthers. There was one shot fired that was by the Black Panther and not by the police. And that was probably an involuntary part that it was like a, a death gasp. Mm -hmm. The guy just kind of pulled the trigger as he was dying. Fired up into the yeah, ceiling. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is one that cuts to the core of, of police abolition, I think. Uh, I actually had a very long discussion with a friend of mine who's, you know, sort of somewhat apolitical. He, we, he and I agree on a lot of things. He's like got this real hard anti-authoritarian streak that I don't always um, gel with necessarily, but, but good friend of mine, good dude, good values. And we broke it down and he, he was basically saying, hey, I get it. Look, 
if we have a plan in place to keep the community safe, policing, right? If that ain't keeping your community safe, why not do something else? <laughs> you know, and if the issue is that they're not accountable to the community, then let the community do it. And it's I the, it's the threat of a good idea. You know, it'd be easy enough to take one subsection of our town and say, okay, let's try community policing. Uh, Louisville police, stay the hell out. We don't need your sorry ass. I'm, I'm saying that too much. I'm over, I'm, I'm wearing that one out. I need to give that a rest. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like, let's take a few blocks or let's take a neighborhood and say, okay, the uh, 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 Louisville Police Department is only going to come in when invited by the community police community policing supervisory council. It's like in Britain, uh, they, they only bring in armed force on a case by case basis that was specifically requested and approved by a judge. Right. You don't right. need people patrolling with guns. And it's like, I was thinking like that song you sent me. Uh, it's like, why are cops able to shoot people running away? Real quick. Why which, are they able to do that? Which song was that now? Uh, was that the, I forget but Vigil by Zeal and Ardor, I believe yes, it was. Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. I want to make sure the people at home know what we're talking about, too. Right, right. Um, fantastic song. Um, but yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and honestly, when we look back, you know, people assume that the, from the get-go, the point was, we're going to get guns and shoot the cops. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was never the intention from the get-go. As a matter of fact, the Black Panthers from the beginning had guns to patrol to make sure the police weren't just indiscriminately shooting black people. That is true. But they honestly, from what I understand, which is only a layman's understanding, fair enough, if I'm wrong, fair. But my understanding was always that the, from the beginning, they were essentially saying, please leave this alone. We don't need you in our neighborhood. We'll take it from here, right? Please just peacefully- person in a neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was their whole plan was saying, peacefully asking, please, we'll take it from here, right? Um, it was never a case of, of people just handing out guns to the community and saying, we're going to get the police. Like, no, no. It was saying, this isn't working. Let's try something else. Which, again, does not seem that absurd to me. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't think that's absurd at all because it comes back to this self-determination of saying you're enforcing an order upon us that we had no knowledge of, no consent to. So, why don't we take it from here? But anyway, uh, you want me to move on to eight? Sure, yeah, please. Cool. Um, so this one is, we believe that all black people should be released from the many jails and prisons because they have not received a fair and impartial trial. Now this is one that I find to be uh, uh, definitely controversial. Some people would say, well, what if they're a serial rapist, or child molester, you know, they always use that sort of like far extreme example of something to deconstruct the entire argument, which I don't think is fair. Um, but I do think <laughs> in a purely legalistic way, if you want to get pedantic about it, I do think there's a lot of basis for this, especially if we look back, we mentioned Fred Hampton a lot. When you look back, you know, those trials were not fair. They were not impartial. And juries are selected. Right. Right. You know, juries are intentionally selected. Right. They move trials to a neighboring county for safety uh but really what they're doing is they're moving it to a wider county <laughs> to make sure that their jury is not of the peer of uh the defendant right which is supposed to be a protected right of a defendant is to have yeah. have uh their peers uh give them a fair and impartial trial 
And I think that if that is your argument, that none of this, none of these trials could be considered fair or impartial, I frankly think that you have a lot of legs to stand on. Um, again, if you want to boil down to the specifics, there are probably some people who don't need to be in the general population of society. Um, I, I can, I can somewhat agree with that. Um, but I, I don't, but that's a, that's a small fraction, you know? very small, very small fraction. And the way that you, you segregate that's as part of, you know, the population away from general society, uh, doesn't have to be prisons, doesn't have to be jails and it damn sure shouldn't be decided by the kind of juries that were selected. Mm -hmm. That's my piece. Right. Well, you know, at some point we're going to study, uh, the new Jim Crow by Michelle. Uh, Alexander, and it's just it's just overwhelming evidence that our criminal justice system has nothing to do with protecting people. It has little to do with justice. But the specific point about not getting a, a fair and impartial trial, something on the order of ninety six percent of criminal defendants don't get a trial. Right. You, you have these trumped up charges. If you, you might have done one thing or you might have done nothing, they throw 25 charges at you. And then, oh, if you want us to knock it down to a lesser charge, then cooperate with us. And they get witnesses so supposedly cooperating with the police, signing statements and testifying to stuff that they know nothing about. And then you have the war on drugs, which is all about confiscating people's property and people get their cars and other things confiscated mm -hmm. and they don't have, it's not worthwhile to challenge it when your car gets confiscated. It's just a system that is so rigged. And then you have cash bail, which if you can't afford cash bail, then you get, you get kept in jail so that you can even less afford anything because you can't go to work. It's just a horrendous system. And then they need to even go, I mean, there are countless tales of people saying that, you know, I definitely didn't do what I was charged with, but if I was going to go to trial, I'm going to have to sit in jail for months. Uh, and I just can't afford to do that. So sometimes it's easier for people to just plead guilty, oh, yeah, right. exactly. get out of it, get it guilty. over with. Yeah. And move rather on. than even, you know, rather than going to trial or you plead guilty. So you have a guilty charge on your record, even though you didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're kept in jail uh, just without, maybe you, you've been charged, but you don't have legal, you, you don't have fair representation. You don't have competent representation. Most defendants don't. It's just, it's really, you know, it's social control. It has nothing to do with justice. It's all about social control. It's appealing to white fear. Um, you know, well, this, this reminds me of, there, there was this thing, I may have mentioned this to you, but there was this thing where, um, who was involved, the president of the Metro Council, David James, said, well, the headline said, it was WDRB, I believe, and the headline said something like, um, gang war in, you know, the FBI suspects there's going to be a gang war in Louisville. And I, I'm, I, what struck me about that is, okay, you're justifying your existence. You're justifying the existence of law enforcement. You're justifying the, um, you know, militarization of the, the police, thinking there's going to be a gang war. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to solve that problem, you wouldn't be bringing in militarized. You wouldn't be bringing in MRAPs and things like that. Right. Exactly. Gosh. Well, anyway.
if you want to take number nine. <laughs> this is the same FBI that assassinated Fred Hampton. It's the same FBI that was probably involved in the assassination of Malcolm X. It's, you know, between the FBI and the CIA, they have caused a whole lot more problems than they ever solved. Absolutely. What number are we on? Number nine? Oh, number nine, yes. Yeah, we believe that the court should follow the United States Constitution so that black people will receive fair trials. The 14th of amend Amendment of the U.S. Constitution gives a man a right to be tried by his peers. A peer is uh, a person from a similar economic, social, religious, geographical, environmental, historical, and racial background. To do this, the court will be forced to select a jury from the black community from which the black defendant came. We have been and are being tried by all white juries that have no understanding of the average reasoning man of the black community. It's a, an interesting point there, the average reasoning man, right? And, and it, this is not to say like the reasoning capacity or the intellectual capacity, because that's what it could read if you were looking for that. But what they're saying is, how do you know what's reasonable if you haven't been through the same things? You know, how do you understand the mentality of a defendant? How do you put yourself in their shoes? Uh, which is very important to understand intent is very important in the law in a lot of cases. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and how can you possibly wrap your head around that when you have been very literally segregated and alienated from the person who you're judging, you know? Um, and and that's, that is just a key component, and I'm sure they understood this, that of, of capitalist society is alienation. That's the one thing that one of the things that keeps popping up all over the place in sort of classics, classic Marxist literature, whether you're talking about the economy, whether you're talking about our social structures, anything, is this idea of alienation, that we're completely cut off from one another, not just geographically, but our ability to even understand one another. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, again, he's, they're, they're using the Constitution, <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure, I, I would assume that's to appeal to somebody, to say, look, you said we have these rights. Why don't we have these rights? Well, it's like saying, uh, you know, I'm looking for an America that's as good as its promises. Mm -hmm. There's a huge difference between the rhetoric and the reality, and mm -hmm. not least of all in our constitutional rights. We don't really have a right against uh, un unwarranted search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment. We don't really have a right, especially if you're black, but, uh, but we don't really have a right uh, to a fair trial under the Eighth Amendment. We don't really have a right to free speech. If you, if you look at it, you can be, you know, the Espionage Act, uh, Obama, uh, you know, starts charging people under the Espionage Act. I mean, if you think we have a right to free speech, I'm, ask, I'm asking why is Julian Assange in, in jail, uh, partly at the behest of the Democrats? Why did uh, the Obama administration torture Chelsea Manning if people have a right to free speech? Um, just saying, just, it's just a question. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I, th I don't think that any of this comes from naivete. You know, I, I would, I, I don't think you could ever accuse Bobby Seale and Huey Newton of being naive about the United States. Um, so I don't think they're saying, well, gosh, you know, this is guaranteed. I just can't figure out why I'm not getting it. You know, I'm, I think they understood uh, quite well. But I think what they're trying to do here is heighten the contradictions, mm -hmm. right? What right. they're doing is trying to elevate these contradictions to a point that are so visible that you can't deny them uh, so that we can 
poke it apart and say these legalistic terms that we're supposedly operating off of are not what we're operating off of at all. That's just dressing for the real root of power, which is not the law, right? Um, and so I think that's where it comes from, all this talk of the Constitution and these promises that were unkept. Um, and I, I, I do think that's a pretty decent way to, to go about organizing your document. But Right. Well, that brings us to number 10, which I, I love seeing this in there. Number 10 is a verbatim, word for word, we're going to quote the Declaration of Independence here. And what, can't, what I can't fully express is the disconnect between, it's like at one point, Apple was this up and coming rebellious company, and then they became corporate. Uh, and at one point, the U.S., at least the story that we're told is the U.S. is born in, in rebellion. Uh, but this, how quickly did the rebels become the establishment? And uh, so anyway, we, we've, we're at 52 minutes. We've got just a few minutes to go, about another six minutes. But uh, let's, uh, why, don't you, why don't you read number 10, Jake? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it kind of stands on its own, so we probably don't need too much time to break this one down. Um, but when, but when you read it, I want to invite our listeners to think, when you read this, think about the very words of our founding document being applied to the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. That says, when in the course of... Go, go ahead. Sorry, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such a form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right and their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards of their future security. Well, <laughs> right. pretty strong. You know, I, I, that's a, gosh, I, you know, I'm not always a big fan of our current constitution just because I don't think it's particularly strong enough, but um, that is a pretty nice little passage, isn't it? <laughs> it's, like, it's like Howard Zinn was speaking to this group and he, and uh, he, he, he he says one thing about those founding fathers, mm -hmm. they could write. Yeah, you got to give them that at least, man. <laughs> they could at write. least give them that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it just illustrates your point that that 
you know, someday the rebels will no longer be rebels and they have to hold themselves to an even higher standard than the people they rebelled against. Yeah. There's just so much rhetoric about being a rebel and so, you know, uh, but when it comes down to it, the U.S. powers that be are going to jealously hold on to that power. And it's like, why does dissent have to be so tricky and so hard and so dangerous? Why is it so dangerous to dissent in the United States of America? Yeah, which was, you know, built on it. Um, but of course, the principles that we've always said are the principles of America are not the principles of America, uh, right. because that's just not how power works. Uh, and I don't think many people articulated that better than Huey and Bobby. Well, one key phrase in here uh, the, that uh, to, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So a just government derives its powers from the consent of the governed. And, you know, I, I say we don't have a democracy uh, because, you know, public opinion and public policy are two different things. Public opinion wants Medicare for all. Public policy doesn't. Uh, you know, public opinion wants war to be a last resort, not a first resort. But we have a standing army that costs a trillion or more dollars a year. So on and on. The, there's just a huge disconnect. The only times public policy can coincides with public opinion is when public opinion just happens to line with big money. Right. Yeah. I mean, you saw that as soon as people saw that they could make some profit off of gay marriage, then all of a sudden that they changed that policy real quick, didn't they? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it, it, that, that I don't even really have too much to say because again, I, I feel like that that particular bit there should stand on its own. You know, it should make the most sense in the world. Uh, and again, I think this is a, a point of them heightening the contradiction of saying, here's what we're taught, here's what it's like. And you need to be able to distinguish between the two and, and recognize the contradiction uh, before you can do anything about it, you know? Um, so yeah, I just, I, you know, I love this document. I love uh, reading this because I think that, you know, sometimes it's easy to get away in this this day and age from the idea of having these big goals uh grasping for something big um and I, I think that it's incredible when you see it articulated that way that it feels so obvious you know that's a great place to end it thank you jake so much for joining us today and we'll uh get back together and talk about this soon how's that i'm looking forward to it Hart. thank you thank you